0: I want us tonight to return to our discussion on the atonement. We are we are really uh, just beginning really to jump into a swimming pool of theological discussion that is profound, that has gone on throughout the ages of the church and is filled with thoughts and um, musings, if you will, not necessarily, I don't mean that in a wrong way, but musings from those who have grappled with the very subject on both sides of the aisle when it comes to the issue of the atonement and for whom did Christ actually die. Things that will cause our mind to be stretched in ways that in many ways can make us uncomfortable as Christians and hence the very reason why some Uh, don't even want to talk about these kinds of things because it puts us in a place theologically that causes our minds to be stretched and for which causes us to be uncomfortable even with our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Not in such a way by which we are confused that God is the one that saves, but by way of the reality of who it is that he does save by means of the atonement. And so we are wading off into that ocean, if you will, on this subject. And I'm trying to do it in a systematic kind of way for our own thinking so that we understand exactly what it accomplishes. We began last time to think about certain terms that the Bible uses to describe the atonement. We said last time the atonement was was a, a, an act that Christ accomplished through His death on the cross, and in that act, God Himself accomplishes certain things, and the Bible describes these things by terms. And the first one we began to look like look at last time was the term redemption, redemption, and I wanna I wanna delve back into that tonight just to just to kind of tie up some loose ends that we might have left out there from last time because we we ended last time with gaining an understanding that redemption in the bible was really a family matter it had to do with issues within the family uh and it dealt with freedom uh, gaining freedom through the paying of a price one family member pays the price for another family member and you remember that we walked through the book of Ruth in a general fashion to just see how that played out in a family context we we got an understanding in a general sense of the kinsman redeemer the the family redeemer idea as it played out in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament and we came away from that brief look at Ruth with an understanding that when we are talking about Christian redemption we're talking about being redeemed. What is meant in that terminology, at least in the understanding from the Old Testament and New Testament by means of its familial ties to the family where one buys another, that what is meant by that is an actual freedom. In other words, when the redemption is taken place, when the transaction happens, there is an actual freedom that takes place. And so when we think about that in a Christian realm, when we talk about redemption through the death of Jesus Christ, we're talking about an actual freedom, which Jesus Christ actually acquired for his chosen people through his death. In other words, when Christ died, those whom he has chosen are actually redeemed. And remember, we said last time that redemption was necessary because there uh, are these barriers that all people are under by way of their very nature. We are naturally slaves. In other words, by nature, by our own natural constitution in which we are born, there are supernatural forces, if you will, that are slave masters of all people. And we listed those for us. By nature, all people are slaves of sin. We're born in sin. Sin. Uh, We were conceived in sin. That doesn't mean that there was some sinful act by way of our conception through our parents or our mother and father. But the reality is that from the very time that we were conceived in the womb, we were by nature sinners. And then secondly, by nature, we, because of that, are slaves of Satan Slaves of the father of lies, the one who is the prince of the power of the air, the one who is ruling in the sons of disobedience, as Ephesians 2 tells us. So we are slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, and thereby, because of that, all people are, thirdly, guilty in God's justice system. Guilty before a holy God. So tonight I want to look at each one of those forces or each one of those factors And see how it is that redemption frees the Christian from those. How is it that that God in the act of redemption frees us from our slavery to sin, our slavery to Satan, and the reality of being under his justice system? And so that's what I want to talk about tonight, just tie up the loose ends with that. And the first of course is that slavery to sin, slavery to sin. When we look at the New Testament and how it speaks of sin uh or we could even define sin by saying it's not serving God. In other words, someone who is is not living to the glory of God in their life. They're not serving God, they have no desire to serve God. In fact, As we'll see later, the Bible says they're hostile to God. The New Testament, it speaks of sin in that way. And very often, quite often, in fact, uh, sin is spoken of in a personified way. In other words, sin is identified as if it's this person that rules. Sin is spoken of as if sin is the owner. As if sin is the king that determines the direction of someone's life. And I want us to turn for a moment over to Matthew chapter 6. Just to, just to kind of show us this, we're going to go to a few places in the Scriptures tonight that kind of, I think, highlight these points for us. Well, the first place I want to go is Matthew chapter 6. Of course, Jesus is speaking on the Sermon Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount just simply means he was preaching on the Mount of Olives, which is across the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, across from the Old City. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to all the people in verse 24, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Right, He's talking before that about being driven by your own desires for the earthly goods and then serving God. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. The word master there is being used, obviously, we understand this, it is being used metaphorically. It is being used to describe anything that is ruling the life of a person. Obviously, in the context of that passage, he's talking about those things in the world, the the stuff of the world, the treasures upon this earth, he says in verse 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. So the things of this world are the the master. So when it says and, and demands that there are two different masters in conflict there in verse 24. He says, every person shows just who it is that they truly have ruling their life by who they follow. What are you following? That's the idea. You cannot say that you're serving God when, you're, when mammon is ruling you, when it is your master. The idea is if the master is not God and no natural man's master is God by way of our own sinfulness, by way of our birth. In fact, Romans 3.10 says no one seeks after God. There is none righteous. No, not one. So none of us can escape that reality. We've all turned aside, it says. So if our master is not God, we're talking about those who do not know God through Jesus Christ, this is our nature, this is our condition, that our master is not God, then clearly it is something else that is our master. And if a person is not yet a Christian, then their master by nature is sin. They are slaves to and of sin. In fact, go over to the Gospel of John in John chapter 8 because this is exactly what Jesus told the Jews when He was ministering on the earth. Notice what He says in John chapter 8 beginning in verse 31. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him. It's ironic that John would start that way. Here is Jews. Here are religious people who say they believe in Jesus. They believed what he was saying. They believed the message. They believed him. Here's what he said to them. Shockingly, if you abide in my word... You are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Here are people who say they believed in Jesus, and Jesus says to them, Okay, if you say you're my disciple, if you're truly a disciple of mine, then know this, my word will be what you follow. My word will abide in you. You will abide in my word. And when you do that, you'll know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now the Jews, those who had believed him, got irritated with that statement. They got irritated at it. They took offense at it. Notice what they said to him. They answered him. And said, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? You see now right there in the, is, a, is a micro picture of the human heart on display. It is the fruit of the natural heart. Under the master of sin, that's the fruit of the natural heart. What fruit? It's sinfully blind to reality. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's what they're saying. Listen, Jesus, we don't understand what you're saying. We are, you're saying we are not free. We don't get it. We are Abraham's offspring. We're the children of the patriarchs. We're Jews. What do you mean we're not free? We're the children of Abraham. We're not slaves to anyone. And it's really ironic that they would even say that statement because even at this time, they're living under the rule of a Roman government. They're saying we're not enslaved to anyone, and yet the very reality is they're enslaved to the Roman government as they are talking. But their problem really isn't that. Their problem runs deeper than that because they're blind to their own blindness. Blindness. They're blind to their own blindness. How can you say that we shall be set free? We are not slaves. This is the problem. This is the problem. How can you say I need a savior? I don't have a problem. How can you say I'm going to go to hell? I'm a good person. I'm morally okay. What does Jesus say to them? Jesus answered, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free Indeed. You see, Jesus is is confronting them with the reality that they don't even know what's wrong with themselves. And this is the reality of it all. It doesn't really matter what they say about themselves. The reality is they're wrong about themselves. They were slaves of sin, and Jesus wanted them to know it with clarity. They're slaves of sin. And it is redemption that breaks that slavery. It is redemption that breaks the slavery of sin. In fact, here's how Paul says it in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. You don't have to turn there or read it, but you can write it down. Titus chapter 2 verse 14. Here's Jesus Christ, Paul said, gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. What does lawless deed mean? From every sin, from the, the reality and nature of who we are, from the slavery of sin. Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And not only that, but to purify for himself a people for his own possession those who would be zealous for good deeds. This is what redemption is. Now remember I said that redemption is a familial reality. This is why Philippians 2 reads the way it does. This is why the Apostle Paul put in here the reality of Jesus Christ and what took place when he came to earth. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ had to come and be like us. Part of the family of humanity being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So when Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. He is saying that Jesus Christ bought us. Jesus Christ paid the price, and the price that was paid was himself. And the freedom, the freedom that is being spoken of in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, is a freedom from what? From every lawless deed. From slavery. Slavery to sin. Just another way of saying it. So on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price. He paid the price. He bought us His own people for His own possession. What people? Those that the Father decreed before the foundation of the world. Those that the Father declared would be His. Hence the reason Paul says in Philippians chapter. One and verse three and four, blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in him when before the foundation of the world in the decrees of God in the ultimate and divine and eternal decrees of God in eternity past. Christ was planned out, decreed. The plan was made that He would come and die for a people. A people whom God chose. Whom God decreed. So that those people would no longer be mastered and owned by sin and therefore would be free to serve Him as slaves to Him. So does that mean that Christians never sin? Does that mean that when we come to know Jesus Christ by faith through the gift of God, that when that act in eternity past happens in time, as God has set it forth, that we never sin again? No. Certainly not by our own experience and our own understanding, but what it does mean is that the ownership of sin has been broken. The ownership of sin has been broken. And it was broken up by means of redemption through the death of Christ. That Colossians one calls it a transfer. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of his dear son, So a transfer has taken place, just like in the transaction, just like in the familial relationship, just like when Boaz purchased the field and with that came Ruth, there was a transaction that took place, an exchange happened, and there was freedom procured. The old enemy, when Christ died, is no longer the owner, even though the old owner carries out enemy attacks upon us. Even though the old owner is there tempting us to live the way we used to, even though sadly we give in at times and we live like we should not, but sin is no longer the owner of us. It no longer controls our hearts. We are, as Paul said to the Corinthians, new creatures in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. And so the Christian has been redeemed from slavery to sin. And Christ's death was the price for it. So what about, what about slavery to Satan? What about slavery to Satan? Has that been taken care of also? Is the natural man only a slave of sin or is he also a slave of Satan? And does redemption deal with that? Let's go back for a moment to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. In The same passage we were in before, a little farther down. Notice what Jesus says. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 42. Jesus says to them, if God were your father, that's what they claimed, they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. They're claiming that God is our father. They believe Jesus and they're saying we have a relationship with God. Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Why? Because I proceeded forth from and have come from God. I haven't even come on my own initiative. He sent me. If you loved God, you would love me, he says. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? That's not a question, by the way, it's rhetorical way of speaking in which Jesus is going to give them the answer. He's making a statement there about their lack of understanding. Why is it that you don't understand what I'm saying? He's saying, listen, you're not accepting what I'm saying. You're not believing what I'm saying. Even though you say you believe me, even though you say you have a relationship with God, you're not doing that. You have no clue as to what I'm saying. And you don't understand because, verse 43, you cannot hear my word. Now they were hearing what he said with their physical ears. They were comprehending the language that was being spoken. But what he's saying is you, you aren't receiving it. You're not hearing it in your inner man. This is the real problem. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil. Jesus was such a soft peddling creature, wasn't he? Just trying to help you feel good about yourself? No. You're of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. Not only are you of him, but you're just like him. You're of your father and you want to do like your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth. You You notice that He's not a murderer because he doesn't stand in the truth or because he, he, he doesn't like the truth. He, he's a murderer because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Why? Because he's a liar, he's the father of lies but because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. You see the juxtaposition he's giving? He's saying, listen, why is it you don't understand? I'll tell you why you don't understand because you, you don't really know God. You don't even know the reality of who you are. You don't understand what I'm saying because you can't hear my words. I'm speaking truth and all you know is lies. I'm speaking truth and all you understand is lies. Why? Because that's who you are. You live and swim in that pool. You are slave of the father of lies. He is your father. And I'm speaking truth, and you don't believe me. You ask another question. Which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, what he's saying is, if I'm lying, tell me I'm lying. Show me. Which one of you convicts me of lying? That's what he's saying. Of course, the reality is nobody says anything. So he says, if I speak truth then, why don't you believe me? If I'm not lying, the only opposite direction is that I'm speaking truth. And therefore, if I'm speaking truth, why is it you're not with me? I'll tell you why. Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them. Why? Because In spite of your claim, you're not of God. You're not of God. Now, right here, we have a reality declared to us about the condition of all men. Right here in John 8 is the clear condition of all humanity without Christ. They either belong to the devil or in Christ they belong to God. And according to Genesis 2, We know that all men by nature belong to the devil. They're of the evil one. So how does a person then come to belong to God by nature? If by nature we belong to the father of lies, how does one come to belong and get out of that? The answer is our word redemption. The act of God in the death of Christ. Not the act of men because of the death of Christ that they somehow attach their life to Christ. No. Redemption is an act of God through the means of the act of Jesus Christ. Redemption. The purchase of and by the Redeemer at the price of the Redeemer. I don't think there's any clearer passage about this. Then Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Just listen to this. This is amazing, right? Here are the the 24 elders and the two witnesses. They're there worshiping God. John says, I, in chapter five, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. We know from our study of revelation, those seals that are broken are the tribulational judgments of God upon the earth. And of course, we know what happens. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And so John begins to weep because no one was found worthy to open the book and look into it. And one of the elders said, stop weeping. Why? Because the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. As to open the book and its seven seals and I saw between the throne Four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, this slain lamb. He came and he took out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the lamb, each having one a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Remember, no one was found worthy and the lamb that was slain comes and takes the book. Now here's the song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and you did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. No more clear picture. Declaration in scripture of the redemption that Christ accomplished through his blood, than right there in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. Jesus Christ paid an actual price for an actual people that would come from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. There is no distinction, they are from all places and they would come by means of an actual redemption, an actual act of God accomplished by means of an actual death of God the Son. So through redemption, the Christian is no longer a slave of Satan. But now they are a slave of God and Christ. So beloved, Satan is vanquished. Redemption breaks the barrier of sin. Redemption breaks the barrier of slavery to Satan. And then lastly, let's just look quickly at the final barrier. The justice system of God. The justice system of God that is against all people because of sin. For the wages of sin is death. All men are guilty. Men have been appointed once to die, and then comes judgment, Hebrews nine twenty-seven says, and since God is judged throughout all of the scriptures, and God is judge at the end of time, all people will see that they have done or what they have done with his commands. Doesn't matter. doesn't matter what religion you were part of. Doesn't matter if it was part of an established religion, it doesn't matter if you were a Jew who were given the law of God. Doesn't matter if you're a Gentile who only has the law written on your heart. Really doesn't matter. Doesn't matter on where where you are in the spectrum of morality or anything else. We all have by nature failed to keep God's law because of sin. And so all people are guilty before God and God's justice demands righteous judgment. And this is where redemption comes in. This is where redemption comes in. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I read a small portion of it already. But notice beginning in verse At the end of verse four, in love, he, that is God, predestined us to adoption as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ to himself. There's the means by which we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intentions of his will. I was on a phone call this week with a young, with a man who, who we were discussing this very topic And the question was raised at the end to ask, why? Why would God do that? Why would God save me, was the question. And I said, well, the only answer God gives us is this very answer right here, because it was according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did God save anybody? Simply because God is who God is and God desires to see His name glorified, which He deserves. And in saving lost sinners like you and I, He is glorified. And that glory, that praise to the glory of His grace was freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. Now here's the point. Notice verse 7, in him, that is in Jesus Christ, in the beloved, the one in whom we were chosen before the foundation of the world. In him we have redemption. How? Through his blood. Through his blood. And what is that redemption? Paul says right here, it is the forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Why would God do that? Simply because that is according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Not because we deserved it. So here's what Paul is trying to say. Here's here's part of the implication of what the word of God is saying there, that Christ's death actually redeems his people. The death of Christ actually accomplishes the decree of God from eternity past. It redeems his people and it frees them from the penalty of their sin. That's why he says that in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have forgiveness of sins. We have freedom From the penalty of guilt because of sin. In other words, by the actual payment on the cross, God's chosen are released from the necessity to pay for their own sins. Because Christ died on the cross, because we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, he has freed us from the necessity of having to pay that ourselves. For eternity. The price has been paid. And therefore the barriers of slavery to sin the barrier of slavery to Satan and the barrier of God's justice system that stands against us have been demolished. All by the act of God in redemption. It was God who chose to do that. It was God who set forth through the divine counsel of His will, through the divine decrees that He made before in eternity past in order to save and have a people redeemed for His glory. It was God who accomplished it. And so as Christians, we actually have freedom. We have freedom to serve God as we were designed to do. That came through an actual redemption. A redemption that was actually accomplished by Christ on the cross. And he fully and completely accomplished in time what had been determined through the decrees of the Godhead in eternity past. So now think with, me, think with me about this as we try to twist our heads into, a, into an ever tighter theological knot. If, if the death of Christ, if through the death of Christ He actually died for, as some would say, all people, then Christ must have actually redeemed all people if Christ died for all people and it was an actual death that actually accomplished something on the cross, then wouldn't that mean that Christ must have actually redeemed all people since an actual redemption took place through the death of Jesus Christ? And if he redeemed all people, then no one is a slave of sin and no one is a slave of Satan and all people have been removed from under the penalty of the future judgment of God and therefore all must be saved, right? But if Christ only died for His own, if Christ only died for those whom God chose to save, then it is only His own who are actually redeemed by His death. And since He has only redeemed His own, then it is only His own that are free from sin's clutches. It is only His own that are free from Satan's clutches. It is only His own that are free from the future judgment of God forever. And it will be only His chosen who are and will be saved. And no one else. There are no other options. There are no other options. If Christ actually died, and we know that he did, then either all must be saved if he actually died for all, and redemption means what we've seen it to mean in Scripture. Or we know also from scripture and experience that not all are saved. We know that. We know that not all are saved. We know that Judas is not saved. We know that many, many in scripture show themselves to not be true. We even know that there are those that Jesus was talking to in John 8 who said they believed. And yet he said, you're not of God. Therefore, the only option is to embrace what the Bible declares about the atoning act of Christ. He died for His own exclusively and without distinction. He died for His own. And His own come from every tribe and tongue and nation. Now I know that causes us to, to struggle It causes us to have some difficulty in our own thinking because we are thinking of passages and places in scriptures that clearly say he died for all. He died for the whole world. He died for many. There are several passages that seem to indicate there's a universality to the death of Jesus Christ. And so our minds reel from this and we go, wait a minute, if, if it's true, if redemption is true and what we've seen in the Old Testament and what we've seen tonight is true and it, and, and it actually frees those whom Christ actually died for from that, then, then how can it be that those passages say that? The question we have to ask then is what does God mean by what He's saying in those passages? What does God mean by what he's saying in those passages? The good news for us is in our study of this, we're going to get to those passages at some point down the road. And we're going to challenge our thinking and we're going to try to answer those questions for us. But suffice it for us tonight to simply rest in the fact that Christ's death was an actual death that caused that actually was a redemption for those whom God saves. Those whom God saves. Let your heart rest there. Let your heart worship at that wall of worship before a holy God, even though all of the things are floating around in wonder for us. And let us just marvel at the majesty of God, that God would create in the decrees of eternity past a way in order to save us who could not save ourselves. And that by his grace and by his mercy, we have been brought in through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that we are redeemed. There's another word that God uses to accomplish or that was accomplished in the act of Jesus' death that we're going to look at next time, and that's reconciliation. Reconciliation. Remember I said there's three words that we're going to look at. We're going to look at redemption. We looked at that over the last couple of weeks. We're going to look at reconciliation and we're going to also look at propitiation. Propitiation. But we'll have to wait till that for starting next time. So that'll be a couple of weeks away. There's no Sunday evening service next time other than prayer night. It's our prayer night because it's our first night of the, uh, of the month. So we'll be back to this in two weeks, two weeks. We'll be able to dive into it again. So you have two weeks to kind of wrestle in your own mind, and your own heart with these things and uh, sharpen up your darts and bring your little blow guns so that you can spray them at me so that we can all, when you don't like something, you go, pastor, that's not good. You're gone. See you. All right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for what your word says. Lord, sometimes we have to admit in all honesty, it confuses us. And we know it's not because you're confusing. You're certainly not that. You are clear in your own wisdom and mind and heart. And yet there's much that causes us to scratch our heads, and wonder. So, Lord, we, we just want your answers. We don't want our own. And where it challenges us in our own heart and our own mind, our own thinking, help us to just rest on your word. Because there's much that has been floating around in evangelicalism over hundreds of years on this very subject, good men even, who do not agree on these things. So Help us to be good Bible studiers. Help us to be those who, who delve deep into these things and look at your word and try to understand your heart and mind. And let us rest there. And so, Lord, help us to uh, be encouraged by these things to continue to share the gospel, even though we know we have no effect upon it. It's only the gospel that is the power to save. Let us be bold in that proclamation. And would you save those whom we share it with? Lord, may your name be great in all nations.